The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. Wonderful to be with everyone once again this morning. Of course, we're coming off of a long week of a gospel meeting. Those are always so rewarding and and filling spiritually, but they do take a lot out of you. And so I commend you for being here this morning. And just for a for, short second, I think it's it's worthy of mentioning uh, in a public manner um, the work that's put into a gospel meeting. And I want to commend everyone for that and and personally thank everyone for that and, and know that it doesn't go unnoticed. There's so much work that goes into a gospel meeting. And even if you weren't one of the the many that gave a meal and prepared a meal or took Devin out to, to dinner or whatever. And of course, I benefited from that, so thank you. But even if you weren't one of those people, you had to move your schedule around and make sure you got here. And And part of the work that goes into a gospel meeting that all the congregation is involved in is showing up, is attending, is worshiping and participating in that. And so that's worth noting and understand that God notices those things. And we were edified and encouraged by, by Devin's preparation and his execution of preaching God's word and certainly by each other coming together and participating in that worship. You know, I have seen on Facebook a few times, and we've heard it said that if the Bible calls it sin, it is sin, and your opinion does not matter. Now, it's interesting that sometimes the people who post that are members of denominations who worship sinfully, but the fact of the matter is that the Bible is the standard. Sin is defined by John in his epistle, 1 John 3, 4, as lawlessness, which means there must be a law for sin to be present. And there's one lawgiver, James 4, in verse 12. He's able to both save and to destroy. And in fact, Paul says in Romans 7, the apostle Paul says that I wouldn't have even known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. And when the law says you shall not covet, what it does is it bridles the desire to covet. First Timothy 1 and verse 9 says the law is made for the lawless and insubordinate, not for righteous man. Understand that the law, it reveals sin so that Sin can be repented of, reproof can be given to those who are in sin, and sin can ultimately be restrained. And so we need to preach on everything in the law. That's what Paul said in Acts 20 and verse 27, that he did not shun to declare to the Ephesian brethren, and he's addressing the elders there, that he had not shunned to declare to them the whole counsel of God. And the reason I preface this lesson with that is because this sin of gluttony that I want to look at this morning is not often heard about. Now, let me qualify that by saying that many of the principles that we will discuss that are of a more general nature included in gluttony are certainly emphasized and reproved and warned about throughout the pulpits of God's kingdom. Certainly, gluttony is never, ever suggested as a matter of of righteousness it's certainly never permitted and it is oftentimes when we don't even know it's being preached against is preached against but the specific and exclusive consideration of gluttony 
in its specificity is not always preached upon. It's certainly not a lesson I've ever preached on. This is the first time I've preached on a specific lesson specifically catered toward gluttony. But it's one of those things that we don't often think about. And I think it's something that we do ourselves harm with if we don't think about it. And we don't understand gluttony and we, we don't uh, make sure that we are, are kind of walking and towing that line because God's word condemns the sin of gluttony very clearly. In Titus 1 and verse 12, one of them, Paul writes, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. A very immoral society is characterized as being gluttonous. And the Pharisees, with as many charges they brought against Jesus, all false, one of the things they tried to charge him is with gluttony. The Son of Man, Jesus says, has come eating and drinking in Luke 7, 34. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. And of course, they were contrasting his way of life to John's austere way of life and charged him with gluttony. They said John was too austere. He was away from the people. He should have been more involved. But Jesus, you're too involved. You're a glutton and a wine-bibber. Of course, a false charge, but they knew it to be sin. They knew God's word condemned it. This is definitely a problem in our culture. In fact, just before worship, some of us men were talking out there in the foyer about the third world countries and, and such that are less fortunate than we, and some people live on no more than $2 a day, I think is the fact Matt gave me, and and I'd never heard that before, but that kind of gives us some perspective. Live on $2 a day, could we do that here? No, because we're an affluent country full of benefits and, and privileges and an overflow of, of wealth and prosperity and of those things which many would describe in the world as luxuries. We need to make sure we're not overindulging. That's what gluttony is. We live in what I would describe as a supersized meat society. Now, let me say that just by getting a supersized meal at McDonald's or whatever, you're not sinning by doing that. We'll, we'll kind of qualify what gluttony is, but we live in a supersized meat society. The allotted portion isn't enough. Give me more. I want more. It may fill me, but I still want more. I want more. Paul said we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. We need to not be ignorant of the sin of gluttony. In the Old Testament, gluttony is translated from one Hebrew word, zalal, and it means to shake as in the wind, to quake, and figuratively it means to be loose morally, worthless, or prodigal. What we'll begin to realize is that gluttony, while it has a lot to do with food and usually specifically has to do with the overindulgence of food, it isn't just food. There is gluttonous characteristics and actions that can be taken that don't have anything to do with food. Jacinius's Hebrew Chaldee lexicon says it means to pour out, to shake out, a squanderer, a prodigal, those who squander or are prodigals as to their own body, voluptuous profligates. In the ancient Hebrew lexicon of the Bible, it simply says a shaking from fear or overeating. Ain't so much you're shaking. In the New Testament, there are two Greek words translated into glutton or gluttonous, gluttony. The one is phagos, and it means a voracious man, a glutton. Vine says it is akin to phago, meaning to eat, a form used for the aorist or past tense of estio denotes a glutton. And the other word is gaster, and it means the stomach, literally the stomach, and obviously in figurative language, a glutton, a gourmandizer, a man who is, as it were, all stomach, used by synecdoche to mean a glutton. 
In fact, that word gaster is also translated into words which describe one who is pregnant. You know, a pregnant woman is all stomach, right? And so we can understand that especially, and that makes a graphic picture of the glutton. He's all stomach. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary defines gluttony as an excess in eating or drinking, greedy or excessive indulgence. So let's stress that. Yes, gluttony is an excess in eating or drinking, but it's also an excess in anything, an overindulgence in any of those things that we might describe as luxurious. It's just anything as a matter of the flesh. You overindulge, you are gluttonous. We've got to beware of that. As I said, it's a problem in our culture. I want us to look at a portrayal of gluttony in the Old Testament in Numbers the 11th chapter for the second time the Israelites were not satisfied with the food that God had given them, and they required meat. And so God sent them quail. In verse 31 of Numbers 11, the passage reads that a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea and left them fluttering near the camp about a day's journey on this side and about a day's journey on that side, on the other side, all around the camp, and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. And the people stayed up all that day, all night, and all the next day, and gathered the quail. He who gathered least gathered ten omers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. But while the meat was still between their teeth, before it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So he called the name of the place Kibroth Hadavah, because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. You know, without much study, just a cursory reading of this text, we wonder why God would strike the people as they began to eat the very food that he gave them willingly. Certainly, he was not happy with them complaining about the manna back earlier in the chapter. And they wanted meat. They wanted quail, so he gave it to them. But he gave it to them to eat. He's going to give them what they want. He's not happy with their complaining, but he did give them what they want. So as they're eating, why does he strike them? Why does God get so mad? What arouses his wrath? I think verse 31 tells us why. The name of the place was Kibroth Hadavah, and it was because they gave place to their craving. Strong gives the definition of that or rendering of that. Graves of the longing. Brown Driver in Briggs says graves of the lust. Your center column reference in your Bible, if you have one, may say something similar. Colin Delich comments on this section of Scripture and says that is... Graves of greediness, because there the people found their graves while giving vent to their greedy desires. They didn't just eat it. They ate over and over and over and over and over again, overindulged. And we can say that not just because of what Numbers 11 says, but because of the commentary the psalmist gives in Psalm 78 and verses 26 through 31. This is what the scripture reads, that God, he caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust, feathered fowl like the sand of the sea. Psalm 78, verse 28. And he let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. So they ate and were filled, for he gave them their own desire. They were not deprived of their craving, but while their food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. Verse 29 says that they ate and were well filled. That word filled means sated. Satiation is what they ate to. Meaning their stomachs were full and they knew they were full. They weren't hungry anymore. But they still wanted the meat. 
And that's why God struck them, because they were filled, they ate to their full. But verse 30, it picks up and says, even though they had eaten to their full, they still craved and they weren't deprived from their craving. And God struck them dead for overindulgence. Albert Barnes, in his comments on the Bible, says that the idea is that they did not restrain their intense desire even when it should have been fully satisfied. They indulged to excess, and the consequence was that many of them perished. They were discontented with the manna in Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6. All we have is this manna to eat, send us something more. So God gave them quail, but he gave them enough to fill them, and yet... Even though their stomachs were filled, they still were not content with that. And they ate more and more and more. And it gets to a point where you're no longer satisfying your need. That's what food is for. But you're just reveling in the matters of the flesh. And especially as people of God, that manifests some pretty terrible characteristics. It shows that they were dissatisfied. Dissatisfied with the manna, God gave them something a little more and and they had more than enough, and they were dissatisfied with what God had allotted them. The portion wasn't enough. They wanted more and more and more. They wanted to continue to taste that flesh, and as they tasted that flesh, God struck them dead. They were dissatisfied, and a dissatisfaction shows an ingratitude. That's not enough, God. I'm not thankful for what you've given me. I need more, and with that, their attention was shifted from the giver to what was given. You understand that? You don't serve the creature. You serve the creator. You don't serve the gifts. You serve the gift giver. But in their overwhelmed mindset of their overindulgence, they started to place all of their attention on what was given. All they are is serving the flesh. And what that promoted was an imbalanced diet of the physical and the spiritual. The pulpit commentary says that the body cannot be gorged, unbridled lust satiated, and at the same time the soul fed, the spiritual life nourished. Do we think that they were right with God? As they overindulged in the flesh? Couldn't have been. God struck them dead. That's gluttony. An overindulgence in those matters, especially of food, as it often pertains to that. I want us to understand, though, furthermore, what is the problem with gluttony? And I think that we can understand the problem of gluttony to a further degree if we understand what a disciple is, the characteristics a disciple has. On the Wednesday night Bible class, we've been studying a book titled Portraits of a Disciple or Portraits of Discipleship. What are some of the characteristics of a disciple? We'll not look at those, those metaphors that are given in the New Testament about a disciple, but what is a disciple supposed to be? And if we know what a disciple is supposed to be, we'll inevitably understand why gluttony is so wrong, as we've just described it. I want us to understand first that a disciple is a spiritually minded person. In Romans the 8th chapter in verse 5, the Apostle Paul describes how individuals will receive spiritual life. It's when they stop catering to the flesh and they turn to the God who is spirit and created a spiritual law for that spiritual life. They start thinking about their souls, inevitably. Verse 5, Romans 8 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, and as the Spirit and the flesh are contrasted, as the flesh and then the Spirit of man, they're thinking about their souls. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those 
who are in the flesh cannot please God. One who is gluttonous is one who is simply catering to the flesh. That's what they're thinking about. I just want to satisfy my fleshly appetite. But the Christian isn't thinking about the flesh. The Christians focus every single day. A disciple of Christ's focus every single day is taking care of my soul. I'm a spirit who has a body. I'm not a body who has a spirit. And that's simple but profound, and we need to understand that. We're not trying to satisfy our flesh. That's what got us into sin. But I want us to take this further and understand that it's not just the sinful matters that he's talking about here. It's a generality, even with things that are permitted, which if that indulgence is overly exercised, you now get to the point of going beyond what God has permitted into sinful realms, which is part of what gluttony is. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12, this is what Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Isn't food lawful? He's saying that all things that are lawful are lawful for me. Obviously, not everything is lawful. But it's not good if I'm brought under the power Those who are spiritually minded understand what their body is for. Do you not know, verse 19, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Christian understands, as is seen in Romans 14 and verse 17, that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that disciple of Christ who is spiritually minded is therefore going to abstain from fleshly lusts. Now certainly Galatians 5 speaks of those lusts of the flesh which are sinful. But lust is just desire. And so you can have a desire for food that is not sinful. And you can satisfy that desire for food by not sinning but getting your allotted portion. But if you now cater to that fleshly craving and you're just thinking about that, you're going to start overindulging. You're going to start serving the flesh. But the spiritually minded person who is mindful of their, their soul and is mindful of God who is spirit and his spiritual law is going to abstain from those matters of sin. But even more so, is going to be careful around the matters of the flesh. In Galatians 5 and verse 16, this is what Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish, but you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. When he says that the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, that means the desires of the flesh are contrary to what the desires of the Spirit are for you to do in your life. And to submit to those desires of the flesh is to sin. And so as a spiritually minded disciple of Christ abstains from, wholly holds himself off from the fleshly lusts, He is also meticulously cautious. People might call it overly cautious. Some might call it radical religion. Some might call it paranoia. But the Christian calls it being sober, being vigilant. Because the devil, your adversary, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.18 Romans 13 and verse 14 says, Make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Christians understand the call to holiness. 1 Peter 1, verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. That doesn't mean get as close to the edge as possible without falling over and sinning. That means get as far away as possible. 
And God is light and no darkness at all. That's holiness, and to this we're called. The one who is spiritually minded and is abstaining from fleshly lust is not just kind of doing it part way, but is getting as close to God as possible and as far away from the world as possible. And you know what? That takes self-control. It takes a control. And let me tell it, say, say it this way. It takes a control of, of ourselves, but not just in the sense where we we can't we can't view it as as this that you can hold yourself off from sin and just let yourself go in all the other areas of life that may not be inherently sinful that's not how self control is progressed and built self control has to cover all facets of our lives even in the lawful areas like first corinthians 6 says that all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And this is how Paul lived his life. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24, he said, Do you not know that, oh, that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. They do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. You know, there are a lot of things that we could be gluttonous about. It may be food. It may be binging, watching TV shows. I've been guilty of that. We don't often think about those kinds of things as sinful but if we can't control ourselves to say that three hours is enough and maybe I need to go read my Bible or maybe I need to go just clear my mind. Maybe I've had enough of this. I've indulged enough. It's good to recreate, to recreate, recreation. But there is a sense of overindulgence. Maybe I've watched enough TV. Maybe I've vacationed long enough. Maybe I've eaten enough. And I'm going to stop. If we can't make ourselves stop with even those simple matters, how do we expect to have control over our bodies when we're tempted to sin? It makes a lot of sense that the way in which we're going to defeat sin is to just be completely in control by the grace of God and the power he affords us in the gospel, being in complete control of everything in our life. And I understand sometimes we talk about how we can't be in control of everything and things happen. That's why we trust in God. But as far as sin is concerned and, and lusts and temptation, God has said you can be in control. I'm not going to tempt you beyond what you're able. I'm going to afford you every opportunity and every tool given to your disposal so that you can be thoroughly equipped for every good work and thoroughly equipped with the armor of God to resist the devil every day. And it's a wrestle, as Ephesians 6 says. But how can we refuse and abstain from sin when we can't even control our own appetite? We can't even say no, it's enough. There's a problem with gluttony because gluttony is eating to your full. And then you know what? My stomach's full, but I want that taste in my mouth. And we've all gotten to that point. Are we going to overindulge? Are we going to say, wait, it's fulfilled its purpose and enough? is enough. Again, we don't often think of this as a, a sin or a problem, but that's what gluttony is, and the Bible condemns it. You know, we follow along with this, and the problem of gluttony is seen with not only its contrast to discipleship, but in a greatly related form, its moral and spiritual implications, a few of which we touched on with the example of the children of Israel. But let us understand that what gluttony essentially is, is discontentment. 
The Christian's supposed to be content. In Philippians 4 and verse 11, Paul describes this contentment in this way. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Notice this, this kind of fits well. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I've learned to both be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. The one who is given over to gluttony doesn't know how to be filled. Doesn't know when to say stop. Doesn't know when enough is enough. And what that means is that, God, you've given me all of this. And while it should be enough, I don't think it is. I want more. I'm not content with what you've given me. I'm not content with what I've eaten. I want to indulge my desires. And you know, all discontentment is, is a form of covetousness. The Apostle Paul, or rather the Hebrew writer, addressed this in Hebrews 13, nearing the end of his epistle. In verse 5, he said, let your conduct be without covetousness. What do you mean, Paul? Be content with such things as you have. You see that? Covetousness is just a form, maybe an aggressive form, maybe an extreme form of discontentment. I'm discontent with what I have, so I want that to such a degree that I'm coveting it in my heart. But let's take this further because, again, we've got to stress how extreme this is, how terrible this is, how contrary this is to what we're to be as Christians. He says, be content with such things as you have. He says this, though, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's an also a form of, of distrust, a lack of faith. You know, we've heard of emotional eaters. I've even been, 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 been guilty of that. You know, you get down in the dumps and it's easy to just turn to what we call comfort food. And comfort food's fine, but there comes a point in time again where it's not just satiating your appetite, it's overindulgence. And a lot of times we think about those things and we don't think about them as sinful. But what are we doing when we turn to food for comfort? We're not doing much better than those who turn to alcohol, than those who turn to drugs, maybe a little bit less extreme substance. It doesn't cause as much problems with our minds or people. But what we're doing is we're putting our trust in that food instead of God who is the giver of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 1. We show a lack of faith when in our discontentment we covet, which is exactly why the Apostle Paul describes covetousness in Colossians 3 and verse 5 as idolatry. Put away these things, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because what you're doing is you're turning to that item. Maybe it is entertainment. Maybe it is an actual idol especially in our lesson, it's food and you're turning to that food and you are looking to it for comfort. You're looking to it for protection, for provision, instead of understanding what you've been given in that realm is from God. So serving God and turning to him for comfort, you turn to the thing he gave you for comfort as if it can offer you anything. And Isaiah talks about idols as being dumb and mute. They can't answer you. Food's the same way. But it becomes so many people's idols. When we take partake in matters of blessings like food, we can't give ourselves to that blessing. The blessing is given to us. We don't give ourselves to the blessing. Else we come become like the Gentiles described in Romans 1 and verse 23. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They started serving the creature rather than the creator. This is what Paul says about gluttony in Philippians 3.19. 
that those enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Their God is their belly. Now, certainly, he's not simply talking about food, but it's included. Again, gluttony is not just about food. It's about overindulgence in anything. We have an appetite for things. That's why we kick back and relax and watch some TV at the end of a long work day. It's because we've got an appetite for entertainment. We want to wind down, and God has blessed us with that. There's nothing wrong with it, but it comes a point in time when you're overindulging in that. Is your God your belly or is your God Jehovah God of the universe? You know what covetous essentially is? Is, is carnality. I'm, I, instead of what we said a disciple is, a spiritually minded person who's, who's not living for the flesh and therefore can't please God, he's living to, to live a spiritual life and is concerned with his spiritual life and therefore is submitting to the spiritual life which is in the gospel. A man who is given over to his fleshly indulgences in an extreme way over doing it is simply a fleshly minded person that's what is warned about in proverbs 23 and verse 1 he says that when you sit down to eat with a ruler consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite do not desire his delicacies for they are deceptive food that's a man who's obviously covetous but who is at the table of a man full of wealth and has the table filled with all of these foods. And it's not just regular food. It's caviar. It's, it's Kobe beef, right? For Americans, right? It's, it's all of those more modern or, or akin to our culture type of foods that, that we may go spend a ton of money on an anniversary because it's a special occasion. This guy eats it all the time and the man's sitting there and his, his drool is running down his chin, his jaw is open, and wisdom says, put a knife to your throat. That's deceptive. There's no fulfillment there. He goes on to talk about money. Don't overwork to be rich. It's the same thing. Don't, don't look at money as something that is of fulfillment. He says that money, they make riches, certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle towards heaven. You can't place your trust in that. You can't place your trust in food. Don't be carnal. Don't think that fulfilling the flesh is going to do yourself any good and give you true fulfillment. You know, pleasure isn't wrong, as we've stressed before. Ecclesiastes 2.24 says, no, Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should, be, should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. Chapter 3 and verse 13. Also, every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. This is the gift of God. But we also read in the New Testament and Second. Timothy 3 and verse 4, that there are perilous times that are coming when men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's essentially gluttony. Here's pleasure, and you know what? It's a gift from God. But when you give yourself to the pleasure instead of to the one who gave you that blessing to enjoy, you become a lover of that pleasure rather than a lover of God. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said that you cannot serve both God and mammon. Speaking of true widows, Paul said this in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 6, that she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives, obviously spiritually. Again, I'll remind us of what we read from the pulpit commentary, that the body cannot be gorged, unbridled, lust, satiated, 
And at the same time, the soul fed, the spiritual life nourished. She who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. Not saying you can't be enjoying pleasures, but living for pleasure. Dead while she lives. You know, life is not for fleshly fulfillment. And Paul makes that argument in 1 Corinthians 15. What if Christ has not risen from the dead? That means there's no life after this life. Which means if there's no life after this life because Christ has not risen, then you might as well just live it up here. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. If in the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's what the life is about. That's what humanism is. It's about getting your money so you can get your pleasures and you can live it up because that's all there is to life. Christian knows better. The man who is discontent and therefore covetous and obviously a carnal-minded man is going to relinquish his power. You know, God gives us the ability to say no to the fleshly desires. The gluttonous individual says, I'm going to secede. I'm going to... I'm going to let you have power over me, whatever it is. We go back to 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12. I want us to notice Paul's argument when he's telling the brethren there that sexual immorality is sinful and you better stop it. All things are lawful for me, he says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and stomach for the foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. I want us to notice what he's saying. What the Corinthians view of sexual immorality was is the same as the food is to the body. Me and Maddie talked about this this morning in our Bible class because we studied the conversion of the Corinthians. This is what they were. They were given wholly over to sexual immorality. It was a part of their worship of their gods. And so raised in such a society, they got this idea that, hey, you know, the body has a stomach and the stomach is put there for a reason. It's so that we can put food in it and it gives our body nutrition. So the body is for food, right? Well, the body is also a sexual tool. We're sexual creatures. God created us that way. And so if we're sexual creatures, we have that capability. We have that physical makeup. The body is for sex. And so we're going to just give ourselves to it. No kind of restraint at all. We're just going to indulge whenever we want to indulge. And Paul says, wait a second. The stomach may be for food and food may be for stomach. But I'm going to tell you, the body as a whole is not for sexual immorality. It's for the Lord. But the reason he can make that argument is because food is for the stomach and stomach is for the food. He's saying that, here's the thing, food is lawful. And all things that are lawful are lawful for me, but I'm not going to be brought under the power of any. But I'll tell you this, that sexual immorality isn't in that category. It's not lawful. You don't get to just do it whenever you want. But we make that point because verse 13 basically warns against gluttony without warning against gluttony specifically in the passage. He's saying it's lawful for you to fill your stomach with food. But all things that are lawful aren't necessarily helpful and you certainly shouldn't be brought under the power of any, brought under the power of eating. That's gluttony. And the man who is carnal, who is simply seeking to fulfill his fleshly desires, relinquishes that power and submits to the master of the flesh. And inevitably, inevitably, what that does is it provides for further sin. Again, Paul said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill it in its lust. 
A Christian, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 9, is one who has self-control. And again, if you cannot control yourself in the most simple areas of life, how do we expect to control ourselves with sin? Now let me, let me stress this, that overindulgence in matters like eating is gluttony, and the Bible says gluttony is sin. But if you can't control your physical appetite with food that is lawful, how can we expect to control our appetite that is physical and things that are unlawful? How are you going to hold yourself off against that? If you're not telling yourself no, you're never going to be able to tell yourself no when it comes to sin. And don't we raise our kids like that? You tell them no sometimes when it wouldn't have really hurt to give them whatever they're asking for. Sometimes a child just needs to be told no. So that when something important comes along and they're told no, they know they respect the parents' wishes on that. And sometimes we just got to tell ourselves no. It's too much. We've had enough. No. And inevitably what that does is it produces a character. And it allows us to be further equipped to handle temptation. Gluttony is certainly sin. And it is a problem. And as we've noted there with the last point. It's providing for sin, that gluttony is a sin, but in its provision for sin as an overindulgence, a lack of self-control, it brings along more sin. It has sinful companions. As any sin is in its nature, we know gluttony to be also progressive. That's what sin does. No one just sins in one area and doesn't sin in any area, in any other area. Sin is very progressive. If you're sinning in one point, you're probably sinning somewhere else. They may be closely related, but not the specific same thing. Sin is progressive. And we've got to take all sin seriously because of that. We talk about little white lies, and we may put that on the back burner as something not as, as important as other sins like murder, but really, murder starts in the heart, and it may start from a lie, right? Sin is progressive. And we may look at gluttony. Maybe I've, I've eaten to my full, but you know what? I've had a long week. This is tasting really good. And even though I'm full and I feel like I can't eat another thing, I'm going to just indulge myself a little more. Is it innocent? What does the Bible say? And I say this with full recognition of my own guilt in the past. It's something I had to think about a lot. You know, some people tell the preacher, you really stepped on my toes in that lesson. I've, my feet are bruised right now. Because not only just in food, I like my food, but anything, anything that is a pleasure, is a luxury, is a form of recreation, is something that is good, can be taken too far. And when that happens, it also brings along other things. One of those is listed in the Old Testament, rebellion. And gluttony in and of itself is rebellion. Notice in Deuteronomy 21 and verse 18, it says that if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of this city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you and all Israel shall hear and fear. You know, if we stopped there at verse, the, before getting to the last part of verse 20, we might think, what did the kid do? <laughs> he's stubborn. He's rebellious. He's not listening to his parents. It's gotten to the point where he's bringing this before the nation, the city, and they're about to stone him. 
Put him to death. His heart will stop beating because of what he has done. What's he guilty of? Gluttony. Gluttony. Overindulgence. He's stubborn. And such was rebellion, but in and of itself, as gluttony is rebellion, it brings along more rebellion because how are you going to control yourself further in other areas? If you're rebellious into God's allotted portion of your food, then why aren't you going to be rebellious in some other area? You will be. Because gluttony is progressive. You know, one other thing that the Bible says gluttony brings along and is often related to is laziness, idleness. Titus 1 and verse 12, remember? One of the prophets of their own said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts. He doesn't just call them gluttons. He calls them lazy gluttons. Some translations may be a little more literal than that. And it's slow bellies. They're slow bellies. And it's not meaning that gluttony is laziness and laziness is gluttony, but gluttony and laziness often go hand in hand, as a lot of sins do. In Proverbs 23 and verse 19, wisdom says, Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Do not mix with wine-bibbers or gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Idleness, laziness is often associated with gluttony. Now, it took me a little bit of thinking to understand why that's the case. And I think we'll all understand it. Linsky says this, The gluttonous man who is idle is inactive. That want to be filled with without exertion in earning an honest living by honest work. I want to be filled without working. That's our society today, right? I want you to give it to me. I want... I want my phone, I want my TV, I want my cable, I want my internet, I want my food. I want to go to the bar and drink all the alcohol I can get, but I don't want to work for it. Gluttony is often associated with laziness. It's often that people don't have the aptitude or attitude for honest work, but they certainly have the appetite for the luxuries of life. And even if they don't work, they think it's a right for them to have. That's gluttony, and we ought to steer clear of it. The glutton wants a simple reward of the work without the work, and not just that, but an overflow of the reward. We've got to have a spiritual mindset and understand we're not living to gratify the flesh, but to be according to God in the Spirit, and when enough is enough, we stop. In Second Thessalonians 3, in verse 10, it says that God requires us to work if we want to eat. In Proverbs 28 and verse 7, wisdom says this, and we'll close with this, that whoever keeps the law is a discerning son, but a companion of gluttons shames his father. Another companion of gluttony is shame. It's shameful to overindulge in our appetites, to give ourselves over to those physical things and show ourselves to be focused on the physical life rather than the spiritual life. We eat more food than we do scripture. And that ought not be the case. Gluttony is certainly condemned in Scripture, and it's a matter that is more prevalent than we might know. And we each all, as individuals, need to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith, and if we need to make changes, make changes. And I think we can by the power of God. If you're here this morning and have not obeyed the gospel, we want to extend the invitation to you to do so, to understand that although you might be feeling fine in the flesh, if you've not obeyed the gospel, your soul is dead, and it is emaciated, you ever seen pictures from the Holocaust? That's your soul. And it's because you've not been filled with the Spirit by submitting to the Spirit's teaching. You've not been made whole 
by Christ and his blood. And we offer you that invitation to do so this morning by being baptized in the cross for the remission of your sins. If you have obeyed the gospel and there's something else that you need to make known or encouragement that you need, whatever spiritual need that we can assist you with, we give the invitation to you as well. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.